Everyone thought we had this master plan for Blockstream, that we had some like secret revenue plan to take over or keep block sizes small so we could profit. We had no plan. I literally went to our investors and I said, you need to look at Bitcoin as the Manhattan Project of the financial singularity. The world of finance will be completely remade with Bitcoin at the core. And it is literally like creating atomic fusion that Feynman and Teller and you know, Oppenheimer did. We're going to need a shitload of money, and I have no idea how we're going to make money, but we'll figure it out. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords... SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB, and you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. 
But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. So the World Memory Championship, to compete at that level, you've got to memorize five decks of cards in under five minutes, randomly shuffled. You've got to memorize uh, random numbers, up to 10,000 random numbers, and you've got like 10 minutes to memorize 10,000 random numbers. Uh, And people just train for it. There's this great book by Joshua Fjord called Walking on the Moon with Einstein, where he started studying these people. And he thought that they had some natural God-given gift. And they were like, no, it's just training the brain to do, to work in different ways. And so he trained with them. And two years later, the reporter went back and placed second in the what? world in the world memory. It's a fascinating book. And it goes through just all these techniques. And so I've been practicing them since I was a kid, kind of enhancing my normal abilities that I had to improve. How did you figure this out? Oh, figure what out? Like that you had this ability. Oh, yeah. I mean... I prefer not to add. It, it, it was just something I was good at. You know, growing up, I loved reading. My parents encouraged reading. I was a voracious reader. <laughs> and just over time, I realized I was reading at a much faster rate than other people. So I, I would read like three or four books in an evening. And my mother <laughs> would be like, you know, go to bed, go to bed. And I was like, no, there's another Heinlein book. There's another Asimov because I love sci-fi. And um all of a sudden, I was reading like, you know, two, three, four, five books a day. Uh, I don't think I read that many books a year. Yeah. I, I listen to books. Yeah, I, I found podcasts really, really difficult because the rate of input was so, so much slower compared to how I speed read because I would kind of just see the page and kind of scan it. And I would just like, it would freak my girlfriend out because when we used to travel, I'd bring like two suitcases of books to last like a one week vacation. And I was like, you have your shoes. I have my books. <laughs> I can imagine being able to do that. But that's an incredible, like, do you not even have to pause to just kind of take it all in the page in? Yeah. I just kind of flip, 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 flip. Yeah. And it's there. Well, listen, also it's great to have you here. Thank you. Long time coming. Yes. We've been talking about this for a couple of years, really. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about the vulnerable world hypothesis or thesis. Uh, and, but before that, it's uh, like the opportunity to sit across from a cypherpunk. Uh, it's not something I get too often these days. So I'd like to dig a little bit into the background. I'm sure you've talked about it hundreds of times, but lots of listeners won't have heard too much about the early history of the cypherpunks. Can you just dive in, like start anywhere you want, but I'd love to just know about like how you first became or came across this group of people, how you first became involved with them. Sure. Um, Take me all the way back. Well, growing up as a teenager, I was uh, kind of experimental. I was an old school hacker. Mm -hmm. Um, So I explored computer networks. Some I was allowed in, some I wasn't, but that was the only way to get access to the uh, kind of early internet. And so... um, But while still a teenager, I kind of realized there was no future in this. So I started a career as a teenager as a security consultant where I would do red team attacks. That was one of my very first companies. So I would get hired by companies to break into their systems and show them the vulnerabilities. Um, A lot of my friends got arrested by the FBI in an early operation called Operation Sun Devil, 
where they essentially made hackers enemy like number one and raided their violated their civil liberties. It's what led to the creation of Electronic Frontier Foundation, Mitch G- Caper and John Gilmore, and uh, uh, oh, who was the third founder? It was Mitch, John, and uh, John Perry Butler, uh, who we miss incredibly great person. Um, they created EFF as a reaction to this. Um, so early on, the civil liberties and the internet really mattered to me. Um, so I was tracking kind of the early discussions uh, that were going on pre the creation of actual cypherpunks, the mailing list, mm-hmm. when uh, John Gilmore and, you know, kind of that group created the cypherpunk movement. Um, I was already involved. I was tracking the early battles around PGP that mm-hmm. were happening. Uh, I cared about encryption. So I sold my first big company in 1996. 1994 to 1996, I had started an internet provider, uh, raised some capital, and ran one of Canada's largest internet providers, uh, kind of like the Earthlink dial-up internet of its day. I was uh, co-founded it with my brother with investments from my dad, and then we merged with another and kind of... I was the CTO. So I was running fiber into Canada, running all their data centers. We sold it and uh, came into a bit of money. Not totally life-changing, but for that age, it was significant. How old are you? Um, This would have been, so it was 96, so I was 23. Nice. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, it was significant. Our dad, who was our angel investor, made more betting on his sons than he had in pretty much most of his career as a, a CFO of public companies. and Even better. Yeah. And uh, so it was a nice. And we were kind of thinking as a family, uh, what do we want to do next? And I had this thesis. I was like, the same way Netscape changed, uh, you know, browsing to make it easy and accessible for everyone. I said, what if we could build like the Netscape of encryption tools? the Netscape of cypherpunk tools, something that is just so transparently easy that the UI would make every email encrypted, every person would have a pseudonym, totally unlinkable pseudonym, so that different parts of your life could never be linked, and you had an email address for every part. And all your internet communication was routed over an anonymous IP network based off the idea of WayDi, PipeNet, which was based off David Shome's DCNet, so I basically took all the best cypherpunk technologies, untraceable pseudonyms, uh, you know, some of the work that had been done with anonymous relay, re- remailers. I looked at Hashcash that Adam had built and invented for anonymous remailers. And I was like, what if we build a cypherpunks lab hiring all the best cypherpunks in the world and we commercialize these technologies in an easy-to-use UI? So we called the company Zero Knowledge. Mm-hmm. We went on to raise $75 million dollars. We hired our chief scientist was one of the original cypherpunks, Dr. Ian Goldberg, mm-hmm. who's uh, invented a whole bunch of encryption algorithms at the time, broke SSL. Uh, he was very, very instrumental, he, although doesn't get credit. He still runs uh, the best security and privacy academic research lab in the world out of Waterloo and teaches people on all sorts of cypherpunk technologies beyond Bitcoin. Um, I hired Adam back. So I called Adam. I knew his work. And so it was 98. I called Adam in England. I said, you need to come work for us. He picked up his family and moved to Montreal. Uh, we hired, we tried to buy DigiCash. DigiCash went bankrupt and I was one of the bidders. I couldn't convince the VCs to sell it to me because we were going to take the patents and make it free. 
Okay. And we were going to release anonymous eCash because that was the missing piece. So the idea was if we had anonymous identities, anonymous IP, and anonymous payments, we could build the internet that wasn't based off surveillance capitalism. Okay. And we could build an alternate economic model for the world. And we could embed at the base layer of the internet privacy and anonymity. So we got in a lot of trouble. We like... We released a hack on the Intel Pentium serial number chip because Intel released a, a, a chip that had a serial number on it that they said would track you across the web. And they promoted this idea that we would put a, a, like a permanent cookie on your chip. And they said, but you'll be in total control. Like he, and we were like, screw that. So we released a hack that showed that a remote attacker could exploit it. And Intel hated us. So we were all over the news as privacy advocates. We were very... Vocal, we got a lot of press. This is pre-Google, so a lot of this stuff disappeared. Um, we grew to 280 employees. We uh, did one of the first, actually, eCash mints. So we couldn't use the uh, Shome eCash patents that got locked up. And this is why we're so against patents at Blockstream and in my career, um, because patents have actually stopped the progress of cryptography. First, the RSA patents prevented us from doing tons of encryption. Then the Shome patents got locked up and owned and prevented the development. So a lot of the original cypherpunks were all anti-patent. And John Gilmore and I actually came up with this idea of an open source GPL patent license that would actually protect patents. That's what part of what Blockstream was funded to create. I told my investors, we're going to patent anything we can and give it away for free to, as long as no one has any other patents. And that's formed the basis of the defense and defensive patent license that's at the heart of Blockstream that's now mm -hmm. being used by Jack and being used by the Bitcoin community to protect against patent trolls. So there was a lot of stuff that went into it, but uh, we got too big for our ambitions. We totally misjudged the market for privacy because people say they want privacy, but they make horrible decisions about it every day. Yeah, I think the problem with privacy is that to achieve you know, high level of privacy online is actually quite a lot of work. And you have to give up quite a lot of useful tools. I, I went through a process after a Jameson Lop interview of trying to just give myself more privacy on my phone. And you know, it was little things like Google Maps became almost unusable, you know, just little things like that. So it's difficult for, for a couple of reasons. I think uh, technically, you know, people who aren't competent with technology can make simple mistakes, which they end up giving up some of their privacy, and also the convenience side. Yeah, well, we actually developed, so we had a tool that ran on your computer. <laughs> you just picked which identity. It would automatically scan to see if you were leaking data. It would replace it with your pseudonym's data. It would automatically alternate your emails, so you would it would essentially be like a small AI agent that maintained a siloed identity. It routed over an anonymous IP connection, something we called freedom.net, which was built kind of at the same time that Tor was released. But we worked with the guys at Tor developing the techniques. We ran the very first attacks on large-scale anonymous IP networks and detailed here are all the ways our system could be attacked because we believed in security through transparency, not security through obscurity. It was all, all built off cypherpunk ideals. We ended up acquiring the patents to the only other way to do eCash at the time, which was Dr. Stefan Brands, who was David Shome's PhD student. He figured out a better way to do eCash than blinded signatures, or at the time a lot of people believed. It was a lot more extensible. 
And so Adam wrote the toolkit and we used it ourselves. So we issued anonymous tokens because how do you pay for your pseudonym where we don't know who you are? So the entire idea was we never could ever break, even with a gun to our head, we could not tell you who one of our customers was. And we actually had the FBI approach us a number of times because one of our pseudonyms would do something illegal and we just said, we can't. And we did it all from Canada where we could export military-grade encryption because in the US it was illegal at the time. Um, circa kind of mid-2000s, the dot-com crash happens. I had raised tons of money. We were running a heavy burn rate, but at the time that was okay because all these companies were going public. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the market just wasn't there. I kind of, I made a famous joke at a conference. Bruce Schneier ended up using this. I said, uh, if you grab 100 people and put them in a room and ask them if they care about privacy, 97 people will put up their hand. Two weeks later, if you grab those same people for a different survey and ask them if they're willing to give up a DNA sample in exchange for a year's free uh, McDonald's, 94 will put up their hand. And I said, that's kind of the problem, is that privacy is ephemeral. It's a long-term thing that uh, people don't generally make good decisions about. Same way a lot of people talk about, I care about the environment, but they'll go out and buy two SUVs because it's convenient for them. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, 9-11 happened. A lot of people thought we shut down the Freedom Network and all our services in response to 9-11, but it wasn't that. We had actually already planned... We just economically, we could not keep sustaining all these cypherpunk R&D projects. So the company had to go through a massive retooling, which was really painful. I had to fire a lot of the scientists that I had convinced to move to Montreal and work with us. We went from 280 employees down to 58, which was, you know, we shut down a lot of the advanced R&D projects. Um, but we were working on eCash projects with Nokia that was supposed to put anonymous eCash in everyone's phone. Uh, we were really trying to build a cypherpunk world. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, just business requirements, we had to migrate into something that was more economically viable, which was to sell security, like anti -fi desktop firewalls, antivirus, anti-spyware. And we innovated at the time by, we, we knew the ISP business because my brother and I had run an internet provider. We were the first people to kind of make it easy for an internet provider to bundle security tools. Yep. So when you got your broadband connection, we did it with Virgin, we did it with Verizon, uh, every broadband provider. The provider, you call up and say, hey, my broadband's slow. They said, can we initiate a spyware scan remotely? They would scan your computer, find all this spyware, and say, for $5 a month, do you want us to protect your computer? And so we changed it from going to the retail store and buying Symantec to just buying it from your telco as an add-on. And so we built, it was all branded by our partners, but we built the tools to tie into the call center, to tie into their billing system. And it became a very profitable business, less exciting from my personal privacy goals. Yep. Um, but we got it up to, you know, 70, $80 million a year in revenue. Uh, but at that point, I just, I, I, my heart wasn't in it anymore. Um, we had lost our youngest sibling. I come from a very large family, and we lost our youngest sibling to a battle with cancer. He was 18 when he was diagnosed, given six months to live. We kept him alive for two. And I had taken a break from the business to study cancer and build his medical team and to kind of lead his fight against cancer. So, you know, I just, my heart wasn't in, in the business anymore. Uh -huh. my, my brother was running it. Uh, and coming back after that sabbatical, I was just, you know, 
it, it, uh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So I, I left and went and started doing startups, uh, started investing in local entrepreneurs, um, tried to build a gift economy game based off Burning Man principles because I've been studying post-scarcity economics, like what happens after money. Yeah. And uh, I, I really believe that gift cultures move. When you get past the singularity and you actually have a culture of full abundance uh, where all resources are essentially free, where do you end up? And you end up usually in gift cultures. And Explain the singularity in, in terms of what you've explained here. Well, different people talk about different things, but at a certain point in exponential curves, you end up on a vertical curve where kind of all things become possible at almost an exponential rate. So it's just, it's impossible to imagine. And so the Ray Kurzweil singularity thesis says sometime around 2037, 2040, we will reach that point where we have uh, AGI, so some, for, some form of AI that is almost semi-aware, or applied neural networks that are close, indistinguishable enough um, that we'll have full access to material science, nanotech, nanoassemblers, so we'll be able to conduct and create buildings, objects, uh, program our reality with uh, robots. Um, and we'll have full access to biotechnology. So we'll be able to do that at a nanoscale level inside of your body. So genetic immortality, reprogramming our bodies, reprogramming organs, reprogramming our, our environment. And so when you end up in this type of world, there's some sci-fi writers like Cory Doctorow who wrote Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom about this world where everything is possible. So what do you actually build money around or uh, an economy around? And he contemplated something called Woofy which was this social capital, which was essentially your karma score. So if you were an asshole all day and people, everyone has brain-computer interfaces, and if you were an asshole and everyone determined you to be an asshole, you could come home and find out that your apartment was 80% smaller because nano-assemblers had given up, <clears throat> like taken away your right to space. Very Black Mirror. Oh, it's fascinating. So... So we were playing around with the idea of what if we could build a karma society, a pay-it-forward random acts of kindness based off gift culture. And it, so that was a COA. It was fun, but it I missed a few things, you know. Uh, but I was also very active in investing in companies. So I invested in a bunch of startups, started playing the role of VC. Um, fast forward kind of 2009, 2010, um, went through a bad kind of breakup with my kind of then-time fiancé. Uh, I just had been too work obsessed. And uh, so I, I was just burnt out. I'd been building companies since I was 16 years old. Mm. I was like 36, 37. Like I, the love of my life and I just broke up and I was just kind of lost. So I went and played poker professionally for a few years. Uh, hired a bunch of poker pros to teach me. Um, How'd you do? Um, good and bad. My ego played too heavily initially. I walked in and I was Always like, the way. playing high stakes. And I'm like, I know what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden I start studying leaks in the game and I start realizing that I'm the whale at the table, that other people are taking advantage of leaks. The fish. Yeah. So uh, I went down a level, humbled myself, hired some pros, hired some experts, and I got pretty good. Uh, you know, I'm able to hold my own and kind of, if, and, I, and I know when I'm out, out gamed and I know not to sit at certain tables. Come 
2013. Now, friends have been calling me since 2010 about Bitcoin. And they were like, Austin, it looks like eCash is finally invented. And my answer, fr frankly, was, fuck, fuck you. Don't call me on this. Why? I was traveling the world playing poker. I was nursing a broken heart. I didn't, I didn't even look at my email for three months at a time. I literally was so traumatized by 20 years of living in my inbox. Um, and frankly, I had spent $8 million trying to build eCash. I had to fire all my friends who built it for me. And I was like, I'm glad someone figured it out, but I really don't want to go walk down memory lane right now, right? Like I just wasn't emotionally in a state where I could get excited about someone else solving it because I was, you know, just still dealing with putting some, you know, trauma, frankly, together. Um, and I just didn't want to think about business. But, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of looked at it and I was like, okay, it looks like, you know, it's a workable system. I'm like, I'm glad someone's figured it out. I hope it scales. Because all these systems, we had seen these systems. I had seen, you know, all, every other big gold. I had seen all these attempts and ne no one ever got one to scale. But I didn't really go down the rabbit hole. Did, did, did people always feel it was inevitable one of these systems would exist or did it feel like uh No, we thought it was dead forever. We yeah, thought just can't be done. No, no, not, not that it couldn't be done. We just, some of the early writings in Cypherpunk literally theorized a system like this. Uh-huh. The system will need to be based off, like Jim McCoy and the guys at Mojo Nation came so close. And that had like Brain Cohen, who had done BitTorrent. Um, so everyone had done pieces of it, but just the right pieces coming together at the right time with the right nurturing environment, just, you know, that takes something. Sometimes just lightning in a bottle happens. Yep. Um, fast forward to 2013. Thankfully, Adam uh, didn't want to give up. So he was pestering me all throughout 2013, saying, Austin, I need to talk to you. I need your help. This Bitcoin shit is real. Okay. Um, he had been looking at it more seriously because, uh, I mean, he had been busy. He had sold his company he had, uh, that he created with a bunch of ex-Zero Knowledge guys. They sold it successfully to, uh, I think EMC ended up buying it, um, a company called PyCorp. <laughs> and he was their CTO and he was like, so he was busy doing a post acquisition. And, um, but I think he, he was finishing his vesting period at PyCorp and had really begun to dive in and really started looking at all the ways that it didn't meet the cypherpunk ideal. It wasn't anonymous enough. It wasn't private enough. Um, it was very hard to upgrade without disenfranchising early users by performing regular hard forks, right. which went against the ideals of Bitcoin. So he was spending a lot of time with Greg Maxwell, with Peter Woolley, uh, in the Bitcoin Wizards chat room, coming up with a bunch of ideas. How, how would we do this? How could we add things like, you know, uh, blinded signatures, or how could we add some cryptography to make privacy confidential transactions, for instance, was something he and Greg Maxwell started coming up with. But they were talking about how could we actually bootstrap or layer in more fungibility, more privacy uh, to a system that's already built. And so that's where the concept of sidechains had come up. 
could you add extensible pegged networks pegged to Bitcoin to allow extensibility to be happen on separate chains um, where you don't need to invent a new currency? Um, so it was December 10th, 2013. Adam finally flew to Montreal and he said, I'm flying to Montreal. I will not let you ignore me another day. What day was that? December 10th, 2013. Okay. He said, uh, read up as much as you can on Bitcoin before the meeting, because I'm not going to let you ignore me anymore. Okay. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> uh, so we sat down and he essentially told me, you've got to go down to the Bitcoin rabbit hole. <clears throat> I was able to do it quite quickly, actually, because I had all the history. Like I had done eCash. Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of. So by uh, seven, eight days later, I'd read everything on the internet because I, you know, had this ability to process information, but I had, like, read almost everything on the internet. I had watched most of the speeches at, like, 2x speed on YouTube. <laughs> you know, I just devoured everything I could. And Did Adam and I... Did you find any holes? Sorry? Did you find any holes in it? Were there things you were like, I'm not sure about this? No, just the ones that Adam and some of the Bitcoin uh, core developers were kind of talking about. The system's very hard to upgrade without disenfranchising people. Okay. Uh, there were some exoteric attacks, but they would already be discussed. So, you know, some stuff that Bitcoin still actually has some vulnerabilities to. Um, you know, there were attacks at the mining pool level with BGP routing, so you could reroute payments in mining pools. There were problems with Stratum. Um, but some of these are, are, are known, and are tr like some of the work that Matt Carello did mm. around better hash and uh, that still needs more community support uh, that just uh, separates out hashing mining pools from the votes. So this was something that we were trying to do at Blockstream, but we just were trying to do too much. But it makes mining way more democratic and way more decentralized. Because even though you pool hashing and mining pool rewards, you don't have to pool the policy vote. So everyone gets to vote on an upgrade or vote on a protocol upgrade without having to give the mining pool their vote. So, uh, it, and it has a bunch of other improvements in the, how, you know, Stratum is working and how the mining pools are more democratic. Um, you know, there were various network level of tax that, uh, you know, if someone controls the entire network, the, you know, BGP routing and causes massive network forks, um, there are ways to do, you know, various, and these are now written up and academically studied and, Bitcoin core and people are talking about various responses to those. Um, but I was, I was in, like I, I was talking to Adam at this point, 12 hours a day over Skype, uh, talking about what kind of company would we create? What would be the principles? How do we make sure we weren't a centralizing force? Because if we bring together all these core developers, we want to make sure that we don't end up becoming the Borg. Um, so we, we were designing contracts that actually gave de the developers more rights than the company had. So we actually gave all the developers this morality clause that they could say if the company ever acts in, against the interest of the Bitcoin community, they could trigger a massive payout that would almost like bankrupt the company, <laughs> which was like totally like counter to any, like, and I had to sell investors on this. I had to go to investors and say, essentially, we're giving our employees a poison pill that can blow up the company if we ever act immoral. But and, required. Yeah, but I was good at raising money. 
And so, and I literally went to our investors and I sold, I sold them on the idea. This was the pitch. Everyone thought we had this master plan for Blockstream, that we had some like secret revenue plan to take over or keep block sizes small so we could profit. We had no plan. I literally went to our investors and I said, you need to look at Bitcoin as the Manhattan Project of the financial singularity. The world of finance will be completely remade with Bitcoin at the core. And it is literally like creating atomic fusion that Feynman and Teller and you know Oppenheimer did. And the responsibilities and the ethics and the number of brains you need around that project to invent that financial singularity and to think through all of the follow-on technologies, because coming out of the Manhattan Project gave us the next 70 years of economic progress in the world. It gave us computers, it gave us uh, you know, new forms of math, radio telegraphy, oscillography, uh, like you name it, the number of offshoot technologies and the ethical implications, because all of a sudden you invented something that had the power or that could potentially in the wrong hands or misused, bring about the end of society. I mean, the Manhattan, and so I literally mm. said, we wanna create the Manhattan Project of Bitcoin bring together all the scientists. I said, we're going to need a shitload of money and I have no idea how we're going to make money, but we'll figure it out. I went to seven or eight investors that I trusted who had the vision. Reed Hoffman was one of them. LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, beyond that, I mean, Reed and I knew each other. Uh, he and I had uh, had a relationship. He funded Mozilla and was on the board of Mozilla because Reed is a very deep thinker. Mm -hmm. He had been there at the early days of the internet. He was friends with a lot of the guys from Creative Commons. Uh, they had done work on how do you design the protocols of the internet to keep it out of the US, United States hands when the ITF took over standards and made it so that domain name space wasn't just controlled by the US. Um, when Creative Commons was writing the rules to make sure that not everything on the internet could be copywritten, that we would have copy left and Creative Commons licensing. So uh, Reed funded Mozilla's to make sure that it wasn't just Google and Microsoft defining the standards of the web. Um, and I knew Reed to be a deeply ethical and long-term thinker. Um, that's ultimately why we chose him to invest in the company. And I was never eternally grateful and never regretted that. Um, and he actually helped us. Like some of the other people we brought in, Danny Hillis was one of the original like creators of some of these internet protocols. He was there at the beginning of the internet. Um, and so we brought him very early on to talk to us and advise some of our people saying, okay, how do we develop? We don't want to create standards bodies because standards bodies go against Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But how do we make sure that some of these things have some principles or some co like standard standards that follow kind of like the ITF, you know, loosely based consensus. Um, you know, so we were able to bring in some incredible people who advised us early on how to think through the evolution of the Bitcoin ecosystem and how to design a company and how to design and some stuff we did right, some stuff we failed miserably at. How did you balance the idea of building a company? which ultimately would want to be profitable with also wanting to support the Bitcoin network, an open source, you know, network, because they're, they're two, they're, they're intrinsically linked, but they're also, also two separate entities. They don't need to be, but it was unique. So yeah. we had examples of Red Hat. There are open source companies who have 
done incredibly well supporting and and generally, in fact, the best open source co- projects have a whole bunch of companies who have learned to make money in the open source ecosystem who can then fund it. But at the time, you need to remember, no one was spending money on the core developers. I mean, ha- almost all the core developers had day jobs elsewhere. Yep. Um, they had the incredible amount of stress and uh, personal attacks. They were being trolled. Some of them had like bounties put out on their lives. Uh, you know, essentially for assassination politics. Didn't, didn't that like crazy Romanian guy who died recently in Costa Rica? He was going after Peter Wille, wasn't he? That was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's public knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when you're Peter and you're trying to do good work in an yeah. open source system, and all of a sudden people are putting bounties on your head to have you killed. It's not exactly conducive to a healthy, nope. you know. And so we looked at it and we said, we got to help these guys. We got to give them stable salaries. We got to give them freedom to continue to work. We got to give them financial support. Um, and no one else was doing it. Coinbase wasn't investing in the open source community. Most of the people getting rich off Bitcoin in mining weren't contributing. Um, to their credit, some people like the guys from Chaincoid Labs yep. had Great guys. been thinking about it. But they didn't know the developers. Mm-hmm. And it was one of my big regrets. They came to us early on and said, how can we help? And we were kind of like, we got this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're helping now. Oh, they've, they've I, yeah. so much love for those guys. And, you know, frankly, when Blockstream went through some of its changes and some of our, core, some of our co-founders needed to find a new environment, because startups are messy. Like, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it, you know, doesn't always work. Um, I personally, you know, frankly was doing too much at Blockstream and I wasn't taking care of my health. Mm-hmm. And so at one point I needed to kind of step down and leave and uh, Adam took over the kind of reins of leadership. Uh, that wasn't easy on the company, you know. Um, How was that between you and Adam? Uh, I, I'm internally grateful that he stepped up and uh, took, the, took, took it on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned... The company can't have a backseat driver. Company needs one leader. Yep. Um, and so I couldn't be in the in the corner telling Adam everything I would do differently. Um, it wasn't fair to him. It wasn't fair to the company. Um, and the board needed to support him. This is my problem with DAOs. Oh yeah, DAOs are a joke I in mean, their current form. Uh, I was in. Uh, I was just in a meeting previously. You know about the football idea. And somebody said to me, "Well, why don't you do a DAO?" And I was like, "Would you run your company with a DAO?" No, I was I mean, like, why? More importantly, it all comes down to human governance. Yeah. And show me a single DAO that can be encoded with the logic and the nuance needed for human decision-making. Exactly. Uh, that needs to evolve for new facts over time. And the whole idea of DAOs are that they, if they are upgradable, they're upgradable by some vote. So literally, you're going to take the worst parts of democracy with the worst parts of encoded human nuance and logic <laughs> and combine them. You know, we're 51% of the people who can be convinced to vote one way. We can't even get people to show up and vote responsibly in a political election. Must mm. Look at most corporate votes. How many people show up and vote for anything that a company actually does? So you end up having these autocratic boards that are run by small groups of power leaders and people just go along with it, except for like, you know, when you have a a minority shareholder group in the case of shareholder takeovers that force the board to take someone onto the the board. Um, And then usually they get paid off with company assets and sent packing through Greenmail. So like when you actually study how governance and companies work, you understand that the idea of a DAO is just a ridiculous concept with today's technology. Um, 
it's cert- it wasn't easy, I think, on, uh, but Adam and I have been friends for 21 years. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we remain friends. We mm-hmm. talk regularly. Um, I support him and I support what he's doing at the company. It hasn't been easy. I think he was pushed out of his traditional comfort role as a scientist and he had to learn uh, some new skills as CEO, but uh, he's doing incredibly well. I mean, the company just had a monster round. Yeah, uh, the suite of products they have now is incredible. I was on the website the other day, and first time I've been on for a while, it's like, holy shit, they do this, they do this, they do this, they do this. They're like the suite, is, it's, it's a, a full suite yeah, of big products. A huge, huge amount of those are not for profit. And yeah. we literally told our investors, we will have to subsidize some products that are just good for the ecosystem that you may never have a profit. But the idea, and you asked why a company, was because if you look at most companies that can affect change, they're usually driven by a capital, capitalist and economic engine mm-hmm. that gives them power and growth and revenue. Uh, you can call them good or bad in various situations, but Google has promoted certain things I really believe in. Um, they've done also a huge amount of damage to privacy and to, you know, some unintended consequences. Um, that's why I went, you know, jokingly, you know, they stopped using that, don't be evil, yeah, because they were getting mocked. It's and- like a confession. It's like the day they did this, like, yeah, we admit we're now evil. Well, what it was, fuck? but that, that's why when we created Zero Knowledge, I jokingly said, we're going to call it can't be evil. Yes. And so, but we actually, even then, the developers asked me to stop using it because they pointed out that evil is so, such a subjective term, what one person determines, and they didn't want it being mocked against us the yeah. same way it became a mocking term because they were like, okay, we think we can't be evil because we're designing things with encryption, but other people may not agree with our decisions on how we're using encryption. We actually had written out all these principles of what can't be evil means. Voluntary, you know, fully encrypted protocols, uh, attack vectors, all always like security through transparency, not through security through obscurity. Uh, was the Google kicker? Was it when they agreed to censor content in China? I, I, I'm trying to remember. Were they not in China, and then they went into China but agreed to censor things like Tiananmen Square, and that's when about when they well, it. Google ended up pulling out out of China mostly. But but when they went, but, was that when they removed the "Don't Be Evil"? Was it about that time? I, I, I th- there were a number of things that yeah. were kind of going on at the same time. Yeah. I think they had started doing some AI research with the military, and then their right. employees protested that, um, which is still a very big open issue. Because um, if you look at what's happening with the Chinese and the Chinese use of uh, technologies where it is militarized, fully state funded, mm-hmm. and they're making rapid progress, some would argue that. Uh, actually using the best of Silicon Valley tech with uh, Defense Department spending. I mean, hell, DARPA funded the internet. A lot of advancements in technologies of energy have come from government funding, advanced scientific funding that the private sector can't do. Um, And so some argue, Peter Thiel and some of these guys have argued that if you don't actually align with the government, to accelerate the development of these technologies and to become proficient at them, that you're leaving the United States at a huge disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Other people argue that why should we trust the U.S. government, who has been, uh, you know, uh, frankly, a little bit war happy and loves to use militarization and uh, as a foreign policy tool uh, versus the State Department. Why should we equip them with better access to technology that makes it cheaper, faster, better to be kind of the the 
you know, armchair police of the world. One of those impossible decisions. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. But anyway, so it can't be evil was kind of something we played with. Um, but the principles and the founding of the company was just so misunderstood. You know, everyone kind of started, you know, attacking the company that we were trying to act like some evil overlords or centralizing force that we were, even the block size wars, which was really hard on the team. Um, and I think on me too, because, you know, I was seeing our name dra dragged through the mud by some really dishonest players. Um, and I, I don't think their names even deserve credit, but, you know, um, I've made this analogy before, but. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and it was just such a dishonest argument because if, if you're talking about the security protocols for a nuclear engineer, a, a nuclear reactor, do you really think everyone who uses power has an equal say on that? So the guy who orders power from the nuclear reactor, do you think he should have an equal say on how the protocols of no. your nuclear reactor of, should work? No, of course versus not. Versus the scientists who actually build nuclear reactors. Um, you know, that's the one Nick Szabo always laughs about and used uh, as an example. He was like, 90% of the people arguing about this have no say in it because they don't have the scientific qualifications to understand what they're debating. I use the analogy of... Hold on, isn't that, doesn't that go back to Plato's <laughs> argument against de uh, democracy? Well, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's, yeah, yeah, but not all things should be a democratic vote because yeah. not all people should have equal say in all arguments. So the analogy I've used is, let's say that airplanes are invented it's mm -hmm. early on in the creation of the aviation industry. And one early entrepreneur is really, really smart, and he buys airplane.com, the domain name. And he's an incredible marketer. He sets up ticket sales, and he's an incredible promoter of airplanes. He sells more tickets than anyone. And he promotes to everyone, get on an airplane, get on an airplane. And then all of a sudden, he starts screaming about the cost of airplane tickets to Hawaii because the planes aren't big enough. And so he comes in and says, okay, I want you guys to start strapping fold-down chairs on the wings of airplanes. Because if you can add 30% more, 30 more passengers to the plane, I can drop the cost of an airplane ticket. And if the cost is cheaper, then uh, more people will fly. And we need to build airplane tickets for the world. And a bunch of engineers say, you know what? We're, we're more interested in the long-term viability of the airplane industry. And if we start killing passengers who are strapped to our wings, or, or we weigh down a plane with too much weight and the plane crashes, we're going to do more damage to the ecosystem. So give us a few years to design a new plane that can actually handle more weight. And this person says, you don't understand economics. I understand how to sell more airplane tickets because I own airplane.com. And I should be able to control how the industry goes because I own airplane.com. Now, I won't use names here, and I don't think... Jerry, do you know who he's talking about? <laughs> Roger. Anyway. Everyone I... knows you'll be talking about Roger. Okay, but... I have a tricky relationship with him. I'll come back to it. But, uh, like, literally, the person comes up and says, you engineers are trying to hijack the entire industry because you refuse to do something that I believe is safe, that you're telling me I'm not qualified to know that's not safe. And spins up lies, spins up an entire economic attack, uh, you know, hijacks every single discussion, um, literally make an argument that they're not qualified to make. And so uh, it becomes really hard to have an honest, I, I refused ever to step, step in the room with this person and have a debate with them because I just refused to debate with intellectual dishonest people. Yeah, I have a tricky relationship with Roger in that um, I completely agree with you on your thesis. Like... I trust the engineers of Bitcoin to make the decisions. I trust 
Greg Maxwell, Peter Willey and Macarello and all the smart people who work on the background. I trust them, you know, absolutely. Roger uh, has been very good to me privately in regards to one of my lawsuits and was willing to help me out significantly without anything in return. He didn't ask, like most people would have expected he asked something in return. So uh, I, I think it's a shame Bitcoin lost Roger, but I think that was down to Roger. But I, well, I think it's a shame he didn't recognize what you're saying and was just still out there promoting it. The great thing about being a god and being Bitcoin Jesus is you can always have redemption. So, you know, if he's willing to get back on a cross and uh, crucify himself, I think people might actually invite him back. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining and Compass aren't just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know I've been mining for over three months with them now? I mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And do you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined training view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking and there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are well into the football season, and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. 
we always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Are you familiar with quantum thinking? Why am I aware? Somebody else. <coughs> hold on. Did you tell me about that the other day when we were on the Zoom, or did somebody else tell me about it? So Nick Zabo coined this. Yes, term. Nick Zabo. Yeah, and I, you, I read the article. Yeah. So uh, the idea of quantum thinking is that uh, you know when you truly understand a topic, um, you understand it. It's also used in the term in sci-fi grok. Yeah. Which is you know. Uh, Michael Valentine Smith, when you grok something, you understand it at so many levels that you can both love and hate it at the same time. You understand it it in its duality. Uh, Quantum thinking is uh, the idea that I can hold two equally opposing thoughts and I can have an argument, I can fight either side of an argument. Debate clubs have been doing this for years when you randomly get thrown on either side of a debate and you need to prove your debating skills by either not just arguing for the side you agree, but can you make an equally impassioned argument for the side you don't agree to? That shows that you understand a topic well enough that you actually can look at both sides. Mm-hmm. And so I can hold... What uh, journalists should do. Yeah, I mean, I can hold both realities. I have heard and seen Roger to be very generous on a personal level to people and uh, extend support. Uh, and, uh, you know, financially or otherwise, um, I can hold that he doesn't have to be an evil, horrible person to also hold the belief that he's been totally intellectually dishonest, lied, and hurtful, and uh, launched attacks at people I care about, and uh, made their lives very miserable. Um, Both things can be equally true. Yeah, you know, human beings are complex individuals. They don't all—they're not always one thing. Mm-hmm. Right? I've made tons of mistakes in my life. I've been really shitty to some people in my life I care about because I was dealing with my own demons at the time. That does not make me necessarily evil. It's just at that moment, I wasn't the best version of me. And hopefully I have enough maturity that when I am at a different state of my life, I can go back and clean up that mess and deal with it honestly. Yeah, well, we will see with Roger. He's been very quiet recently, so I have no idea. Um, I, I I, I would like to see him come back and do the, the necessary things. I for think that to happen. various parts of the community forking off was the best example of what Bitcoin is. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a great stress test. Uh, yeah, but when it also allows you to like let all the crazies go sit on Crazy Island. Uh, we still got it, a few crazies. But eventually, they'll. Look at what happened. They forked themselves three, four times. Yeah. Like they saw how hard it was to actually build a healthy open source community. I mean, one of the first speakers that we brought in to the Bitcoin scaling conference in Montreal was an expert on open source toxicity, like toxicity in the open source community. Everyone was so focused on the block size rewards, but she was this expert of the University of uh, Montreal McGill who had studied how uh, like – Apathy, arrogant, uh, you know, some of the worst parts of kind of geek or, you know, can be kind of very arrogant thinking, lack of listening skills was destroying various open source communities. And they went through examples of open source projects that had forked, that had built dysfunction in them. Um, And so we were trying to think about some of these issues, like how do you, and a lot of them, 
under the guidance of some of the Bitcoin wizards, uh, just developed very healthy protocols for how do you deal with decision making? How do you deal with uh, meritocracy so that, you know, people's get their RFCs and or their BIPs, which was based off kind of the RFC and ITF protocol process. Um, they could get their BIPs considered, but if they wanted to make the change, they had to build enough consensus in the community to be able to, and they needed to study a whole bunch of, you know, comments that would allow people to do proper risk assessment because people don't understand that in traditional software projects, for every 10 hours or every 100 hours of coding you do, you might do 10 hours or 15 hours of tooling, testing, and QA. Mm-hmm. NASA developed the model for anything that went into the space shuttle that for every 10 hour, uh, for every 100 hours of coding, you did 900 hours of testing. Damn. Because their attitude was that we can never, ever lose someone in space. Yeah. And if we do, we will ruin the entire space industry for the planet. Uh, and they had that kind of approach to engineering that was risk avoidance. And it took principles from civic engineering, like when a bridge gets built, they stress test and they think about anything that can go wrong. And you literally design around that principle of this bridge can never fall down. Nuclear engineering has the same safety requirements. Bitcoin Core took that approach. And that co- comes at a cost. It moves slow. It, it builds risk tolerance. And so, like, the amount of unit tests and the amount of testing and backwards testing, uh, that's what led Bitcoin Core to discover flaws in OpenSSL that have gone undiscovered for almost 15 years on the internet. Wow. Because they were doing back testing and cryptography testing that no one else had invented. They invented a series of tools for secure coding, uh, like Gideon, which allows you to build things and verify your builds to make sure that no one had invented on the internet. Which yeah, I wonder what Ethereum approach that. It's like for every hundred hours coding, they do like twenty-five minutes testing. They took a different approach. They took the approach of fast breaking things. Yeah, move fast and break things. Move fast, break things, lose your money. I personally uh, think that you know. That was like taking nuclear energy, which was the power of blockchains and the power to create currencies, and essentially putting it in a kitty box and handing it out to children. Uh, and we saw the effect of that. ICO scams, uh, you know. DeFi hacks. DeFi hacks regularly. Uh, you know, when you're building a house of cards on a bed of sand, you are going to have something that falls down regularly. And if the attitude is, who cares who gets hurt? We're just innovating. We're just moving fast. Then you bring regulatory risk on the entire ecosystem. You bring uh, burning of people when their first experience with DeFi or with coins is losing all their money in an ICO scam. The you know the moral hazard risk to you, what you've created is quite high. Um, but to be honest, I mean, uh, people love to beat up on Vitalik for this. Um, like I said, this dual thinking, I think Vitalik has a lot to answer for, but at least in the world of shitcoining uh, and scams, he actually st- just stuck around. You look at most of the co- people who created Ethereum around him, they were all liars and scammers and they profited hugely and they left him holding the bag. I do like uh, that Bitcoin's cohorts are nuclear engineers and space scientists. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it's necessary. Well, and, you know, and those people need support and they need an environment to create in that is outside of commercial interest. 
Um, you know, even uh, some, some of the accusations about like Blockstream that got so ridiculous at one point, like we took money from Digital Currency Group. Um, frankly, because Barry Silbert and Meltem Demers at the time were incredible investors. Mm -hmm. They invested in all the, the Bitcoin exchanges and we knew we needed to have better relationship with exchanges if we wanted to get things like liquid and uh, side chains and, uh, you know, adopted. <laughs> we took a small amount investment, very minority, like a six-figure check when we were doing $21 million, or actually they came in on our Series A. So, you know, small six-figure six checks when we're doing, uh, you know, a $57 million round. Um, but everyone then, and, and at the time, that was just DCG. That was the capital. A couple years later, they created a new fund <laughs> with MasterCard. And so there's these charts, conspiracy charts oh, on the internet. I've seen them. That I've show seen that them. MasterCard controls Blockstream. I've or that the, the Bilderbergs control. I know, the Bilderbergs. Totally ridiculous. Has nothing, no bearing on the truth. We took, we took some money from AXA, a non-minority, non-voting. Um, their name was first on the investment list because we named the, the investors alphabetically, not by size of investment. AXA, Strategic Ventures, the insurance company was looking at uses for of Bitcoin and technology in the insurance industry. Frankly, they're thinking very long term, and the p potential for Bitcoin for insurance industries is massive. Like insurance industry has to deal with payouts and has to deal with creating annuity funds over 20, 30 year life terms for policies. What better asset to own than Bitcoin if you're thinking about long-term gains in a deflationary world when your current currency is being debased at 20% a year? Um, aside from that, you look at foreign markets where they're trying to deal with payments and micropayments and trying to, you can't, you can't charge someone $5 a month for insurance when the cost of a transaction in that part of the world is $15 minimum transaction fee. So if you're not looking at micropayments and things like Lightning Network to be able to do payment networks for an insurance, then you're ignoring 3 billion people in a foreign market. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the opportunities for insurance companies to take advantage of Bitcoin are huge. And we were looking at, could we use some of the ways insurance companies use transparency of products, reinsurance. There's a whole bunch of risk in the system that we thought Bitcoin and blockchains could benefit. So that's why you take on an investor so you can learn from each other. And the fact that I guess their chairman had been involved in AXA, in Bilderberg and attending, I never knew. I found out later. <laughs> and frankly, some of the conspiracies, I know, you know, some people believe them or not, but I've been at some of those conferences. I've never been to the Bilderberg, but I've been invited into conferences that are very, very, very exclusive, that are like 300, 400 people invite only that have, you know, attendees who are heads of state, who have, you know, the same attendees who go to Bretton Woods. Um, frankly, I, I welcome the opportunity to go into those rooms because I get to learn from these people. I got invited into some central bank meetings that were hugely informative for me, teaching me how central bankers are thinking about Bitcoin so I could think of how we would react to their moves. How, how do you think about the progress of Bitcoin now? I couldn't be more excited, yep. couldn't be more happy. Um, some of the things that uh, I think we were, not we, but the community were very smart to 
you need to remember there are some smart, smart people involved in Bitcoin who are thinking at layers and levels of strategy that are 10 to 15 times deeper than anything you or I operate on. And I consider myself a deep strategic thinker. Well, that, if it's 10 from you, it's, it's a good 1,000 from me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I went to, at one point, Greg Maxwell, and I was trying to argue a, a point. And you, you never get humbled faster or quicker until Greg schools you. Because, <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about an incredible mind. Uh, one of my greatest moments of joy, frankly, was I got to attend a meeting that I had set up with one of the top cryptographers, uh, in the world who had invented some of the cryptography that's just now being considered in Bitcoin in Taproot. Um, and uh, he's a professor at Stanford. And I was, we were trying to evaluate whether or not certain algorithms should be trusted yet, even though they've been out there for 12 years. And this guy invented the algorithm. So I organized a meeting with Adam Back and Greg Maxwell. You know, Adam Back has a PhD and is a learned cryptographer. Greg Maxwell is self-taught. I mean, he is just a brilliant mind who has studied. And and I watched them at the whiteboard, and I literally felt like I was at the Manhattan Project wa- watching Feynman and, uh, like, Teller working. I, it was like this beautiful mind moment. And I was barely carrying on the conversation. I, I hung out with cryptographers enough that I understood what – and they're, like, doing math and they're doing protocols. And they finally end it, and Adam goes to this professor. He, he goes, well, you wrote the algorithm. Would you trust all your money on it? And he goes, nah, not for another 10 years. And I mean, this is the level of thinking that you, because we've seen crypto algorithms fail. Mm-hmm. After, so when you have projects that are like move fast and break things, let's use the algorithm that just came out two years ago. Uh, you know, some of the snark zero knowledge proof stuff that there is being used and contemplated. We've seen five, four or five of the zero knowledge protocols break. I mean, zero cash and Zuku at least track cryptography, and he understands, but some of the protocols early on that they were using have had flaws on them. And so, you know, cryptography is not somewhere where you want to use the latest, greatest. You use the proven and the strongest that has the most reliability on it because that's risk avoidance. Um, And so I was arguing with Greg Maxwell, trying to argue actually for a more political approach to the block size wars. because I was getting beat up and I was getting yelled at by all the industry players that uh, who wanted a 248 or some. And uh, I was like, kind of, Greg, come on. You know, Segwit will buy some, but, you know, can't we do that just to appease people, just to, just to alleviate some of the pressure in the community? Because, you know, and Greg is like, you know, Austin, I'm sorry, we do not build bridges based off alleviating the community pressure because people, you know, we don't add four lanes to a bridge when it's unsafe just because people want to get to work faster. He goes, we have to do what's right from an engine. And he proceeded to go through with me all of the things that I had never considered. He walked through me how all the exchanges had done no engineering work and were stuffing the uh, the blockchain that, you know, Coinbase still for years later did not do proper batch ordering Mm -hmm. and was still dragging its feet. And he was like, if they continue to kick the can down and expect the open source engineers to do risky engineering because they won't t- invest in using the protocol right, where does that end us, end, end us up with? He goes, we need to have some constraints because these people need to start losing the resource 
properly like a scarce resource. And there's 50 things they can do on an engineering level that would make their use of the blockchain so much more efficient. And they just don't do it because they're too busy adding shit coins, to, which make them money, as opposed to investing in infrastructure. And he was right. Mm, he was right. And certain exchanges started to do proper batch ordering, prop, did proper use of it, and they found their cost on Bitcoin lowered incredibly. And Bitcoin would have been way worse off because we would be less decentralized and more susceptible to attacks if he had been wrong on that. And so, you know, even in the New York agreement, we went up against Barry Silbert. Barry Silbert was on the wrong side of an argument. I, I appreciate Barry for all he's done, but that doesn't mean he was right in this instance. Um, and frankly, Wences is the only person in the Bitcoin ecosystem who had the like moral uh, fortitude to actually come back and say, I was wrong. A whole bunch of people on the wrong side of the New York agreement have yet to come back, but my life doesn't change based off mm -hmm. getting an apology from them. Um, but it's just nice to see people like Wences actually stand up and say, hey, I actually was on the wrong side of this. Yeah, and, and, and that's totally fair because, I mean, look, I don't have the knowledge you guys have. In 2017, both arguments made sense to me. It's like, oh, yeah, more transactions. That makes sense. It scales faster. Oh, yeah, smaller block size. Decentralization makes better. But I ended up just siding with the, the people I trusted in the end. Who do I who do I believe? Huh? You know, Jameson, Rob, whoever. But I've had conversations with Jameson considered larger blocks. I think even at one point, Adam was having conversations about it. Like everyone's had the conversation. Listen, 248 was a viable proposal and Peter Woolley had actually coded up uh, and things were being considered, but that was before Luke figured out how to do SegWit as a soft fork. And, you know, that was just an incredible revelation because once we saw that we could roll in SegWit as a soft fork, that made, it just opened up a realm of opportunities that fit so many, it allowed us to do protocol versioning. It allowed us to deal with, uh, you know, changes we needed for uh, Lightning to become viable, which would give us a proper L2 layer two because we could finally deal with transaction malleability because that was the one thing blocking it. So when we finally realized that we could do SegWit as a soft fork, that just became the best engineering option. And when the best engineering option presents itself, you don't go back and say, okay, we're gonna engineer an entire ecosystem for the world based off a broken, flawed compromise when the better engineering solution is there. And so the engineers stuck by the principles and that had consensus. 80% of the coders who were actually coding and working on the project all agreed with the roadmap to make SegWit the priority and then to do block size extensions through the, extent, the extended block size you get from SegWit and then focus on lightning and developing layer two. And they were right. And look at what's, now we have strike. Now we have what's happening in Venezuela. Now we have like, you know, just a wealth of opportunities coming from proper L2 engineering, as opposed to some other projects that have tried to do L2 with sharding and with all these other hacks that, you know, frankly, like I said, is a house cards built on a bed of sand. So when you're thinking about Bitcoin now and maybe Greg and Adam, what, what are the, risks you tend to think about now? Because my, my assumption is over time, certain risks aren't, aren't as big as they are. Like there's other things you have to focus on over time as Bitcoin becomes bigger. Well, I won't speak for Adam or Greg. Yeah, okay, fair, yeah. Um, some of the more interesting discussions I've been having lately are with like Jeff Booth. I think he's one of the yeah. most incredible minds in the Bitcoin space and such a welcome uh, addition because 
he understands the language of central bankers. He understands the language of economists who, you know, are bought into this MMT monetary, you know, bullshit. Bullshit. Um, and in fact, some of them are out there actually advocating for never-ending printing of money and never-ending deficits. And he's actually gone through and just proven from a very valid basis in his Price of Tomorrow book, which is the best book I recommend for even the hardcore Bitcoiners haven't read this book hmm. um, because it comes at Bitcoin as the solution to a set of problems that they may understand inherently, but they don't understand. He comes at it from the fact that we have two exponential curves that are about to run into each other. One is the exponential curve of the singularity. So technology advancing at exponential rates should make things deflationary, should make things in our life cheaper, faster, and more abundant. The only reason they're not is because we have a central bank that's based off inflationary targets, right? A central bank that has inflation as its core goal, which, by the way, promotes uh, more consumerism, more, 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 buy more, spend more, more, damage, more, more. damage the planet more. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the effect it's having on the entire planet from just instead of figuring out how to get things cheaper and faster and more abundant, you have to do more. Right, and that drives prices up and keeps prices artificially up. Like the price of a cell phone should, my iPhone 14 should, if it followed Moore's law, be a hundred bucks. Instead, it's fifteen, eighteen, hundred, two thousand dollars. That's not because of anything that Apple is doing. Apple needs to keep its profits up, yes, um, but it's to promote bad central banking and the government involved in central banking. And so Jeff understands this, that if you actually wanted to bring these technologies to the masses and you wanted to bridge the democratization of these benefits and you actually want to improve everyday, like especially the, the middle class, because this is one of the biggest dangers is that we're going to build a society of haves and have nots. And all the Bitcoiners who think they can go live in citadels have something coming to them. Because frankly, you can... Jeff has this incredible line. Show me any point in history when you could build walls big enough to keep the haves away from the have-nots. Especially in a world of singularity tech. So not even with Bitcoiners inside of their citadel as the targets. Let's imagine in a world, and this will get into some vulnerable world hypothesis. Let's imagine that I'm uh, you know, a, a, a Venezuelan student. I'm 15, 16. I've seen my mother uh, and sisters raped by gangs. You know, I've seen a dictator who's t totally corrupted the you know system. Uh, frankly, you know, stole Bitcoiners, <laughs> miners, ASICs. Like mm -hmm. people don't talk about this, but it actually happened. Yeah, it did. You know, I know some of those people who were actually had to flee and were running the ASIC miners, who are now expats, had their entire Bitcoin mining operation stolen by the Venezuelan secret police. Um, so, you know, and I, I, I try and make my way to the United States. I'm told I'm not of the right economic opportunity. I'm told I'm not the right color. So I get sent back and I land, my, I land in Mexico somewhere where I'm also dealing with, you know, tr gang warfare, you know, total corrupt state due to bad drug policy, narco capitalism. Um, you know, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm pissed off. I've seen my entire family wiped out through corruption of money and state. I see all these people living in the United States with their walls built. What do you think is going to happen in 10 years? 
you don't think someone like that isn't going to go to the university and download some plans for CRISPR-55, for synthetic biology, for autonomous drone technology, and say, you know what? I'm going to inflict my will on you. I'm going to send a fleet of drones with, uh, uh, you know, to disperse COVID-55 that's weaponized, custom designed, and will uh, wipe out 20 million people. Or, you know, anyone can be a victim. You know, I'm going to do it against the Jews if the people is, you know, anti-Semitic and believes that the Jews control the, the world's money, you know, which is ridiculous and hateful. But, you know, who, whoever they want to do it, you know, one man's, what was the famous saying? Uh, one man's terrorist is, is another, is another man's, man's freedom, freedom fighter, fighter, right? Yeah. You know, but this person... When they have access to exponential technologies, this is Nick Bostrom's vulnerable world hypothesis, which has been obsessing me lately, which is if we don't reduce the threat profile, because as a cypherpunk, I was kind of taught to think about the world in threat modeling. So you approach everything based off threat models and you, you, you design, and we did this at Zero Knowledge extensively. Um, we would publish threat models that essentially go through and you think through how can this system be attacked at every single layer, at every single level. And so when I'm thinking about the future and I'm thinking about how do we bring the world into this hyper-Bitcoinization, one of the biggest concerns I have is that we don't deal with lifting all boats equally fast enough. So, you know, that's why Venezuela is so important but it's why it's also important that we have that happen in multiple Latin American countries. Um, I think it's important that, uh, you know, if we could see six or seven Latin American countries do what uh, currently is being done in Venezuela, um, where we have democratically elected responsible governments using Bitcoin and using Bitcoin financing to create some of the best financial products better as alternatives to IMF debt which is going to piss off the IMF. Um, but I think you can actually build a better bond product financed by Bitcoin and actually start saving some of these nations in the currency wars that are about to happen. So it sounds to me then you, you're you starting to think about your, you know, the things you're thinking about with regard to Bitcoin are not so much contained now within the protocol. It's, it's the products we can build outside of it that can help move society forward. It's the society and it's the impact and it's the transition path to, uh, of how do we make sure that Bitcoin is the economic ladder? Bitcoin is the economic ladder that can save the middle class. It can move people up the economic levers um, outside of central banks. How do you do it in the United States? Right? When you have a system that is so US dollar, US Fed, um, and, you know, the U.S. Fed central banks are going to do what U.S. Fed central banks are going to do. But we've seen at the local level, Miami, New York, um, mayors. So, you know, Salim Ismail, I don't know if you know Salim yep. Ismail. Salim is doing some incredible work at the, uh, you know, his thesis, and he and I have discussed this for a number of years, is uh, that you can do it at the municipal level much more uh, democratic governance, city hacking than you can do at the federal level. Because at the federal level, it's all regulatory capture. It's all like 
politics and, you know, long-term interests and you have to lobby and, <laughs> but at the municipal level, which actually makes a difference in everyone, everybody's everyday life. What if we hyper-Bitcoinize a city? What if you do it based off good candidates, like actual good candidates? So there's this incredible uh, internet entrepreneur, uh, Farhad Mohat, uh, who is running a, a, a political initiative called uh, the Good Party that is looking at using how to break the two-party system inside of the United States. A bit like Andrew Yang's trying to. Yeah. So uh, how do you actually use this system to get third-party candidates actually on the ballot and break the logjam? What if you were to combine Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin candidate with good politics that's not funded by lobbyists, not funded by dark money, that's totally transparent? Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes this. Well, listen, I mean, we've got a trillion dollar market cap right now. You go forward five years and we may have a $10 trillion market cap. Things have become a lot easier because you have capital. Well, more importantly, you can start actually representing politicians who have uh, Bitcoin and the, the interest of financial sovereignty, financial independence of their citizens at their best interest. And the type of things you can do are amazing. I mean, I could, I could blow your mind with some of the stuff we're thinking about and talking about, but like you could literally hijack an entire town, create Bitcoin incentive bonds for the citizenry where you create a totally new tax incentive system where a candidate comes in and basically says, like, if you stay, for, if you stay in the city for five, five to seven years and you prove that you're working and staying in the city, you get, it's a new form of UBI backed by Bitcoin you get access to a Bitcoin bond. You can use it, you can draw down and borrow fiat against it, but you never sell your Bitcoin. It's locked up over seven years. You have to prove you're a citizen of the town. You have to prove that you're uh, you know, uh, a viable economic player in our local citizens. So you vote, you stay, you live, and we'll give you this Bitcoin asset and you can draw down regularly fiat loans against your Bitcoin asset, against it, to finance your life, to finance self-improvement, university, start a, start a company, start a job. And we will literally give you, give you, as a citizen of our town, a Bitcoin bond. And at the seven-year vesting, when you've proven that you've been, the entire thing vests and it becomes yours. And you pay taxes on all your fiat conversion rates. It creates tax revenue for the state. You could literally hijack a town and use Bitcoin and a good candidate to create economic, like all the people fleeing California and the taxes going to Miami. Uh, you know, all the people trying to figure out, you, you, we could pick a town of 20 or 30,000 people, get a few Bitcoiners to, you know, back and underwrite the bond. You could do amazing things. And there are people who are talking about some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the economic reality is starting to play out now with Bitcoin. We've, we've, we've seen it, uh, at a, I say a micro scale, but in El Salvador. We're seeing the reality of it playing out there now, the volcano bonds, the uh, airdropping of Bitcoin to the, the population, uh, using laws to encourage people to adopt Bitcoin technology so people can use it. We're starting to see some smaller 
policy. Yeah, sorry, I might have spoke before. I was talking about Venezuela and El Salvador. I was, I meant El, El Salvador. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're talking about the Bitcoin city. Yeah. I mean, these things are fascinating. Yeah. I mean, what, what Blockstream is doing with, uh, and Adam and the group who are underwriting it, it's incredible. <laughs> it is going to, I think, shock the world and rock the world. In a world of negative bonds, I mean, last year's the best performing bond product in the world was MicroStrategies bond, mm -hmm. right? I think that, that I have not verified that claim, but I heard it Michael Saylor claim, uh, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. That was a Bitcoin product. I think the Venezuelan bond might be one of the best performing bonds in a world of negative bond interest the rates. The El Salvador bond. Sorry, the El Salvador yeah. volcano bond might be one of the best performing bonds. Now, some uh, people have other opinions on it. I know. Sorry? Of, of course. Yeah, yeah. they're but allowed like, to. But I think Samson announced it's 30% committed, verbally committed. If they close that bond, yeah, if there's a rapid closing of that bond, that's going to open the eyes to other people in the region who maybe are fucking pissed off with the IMF rules and so, interference. So I, I, I heard part of your conversation. I was traveling with uh, Nick Carter where yeah. he, he mentioned uh, – you could get a similar risk exposure without having to do, and I understand that. Yes, you can if you understand financial world markets. But I don't think what what he, I think he missed was the opportunity. The opportunity to stick your finger the, up to the IMF the, and go. The, Let's the opportunity do this. to do a Bitcoin-powered volcano bond, and the community support, the community wanting to come together and say we can finance a central bank. Let's get out there and let's play at the level yeah. that Bitcoin should be able to play at. I think, I think the Bitcoin community is going to come together and I think the thing is going to sell out. And I think it will be one of the best performing bonds in the international bond market. I agree because they want to show the rest of the world and these large institutions that we can do it without you. And what happens when you can bring that now to Costa Rica? What happens when you can bring that now to uh, Nicaragua? Every other Latin American country has been is being approached and forced to remake its tax laws according to IMF rules to uh, inf like take on massive amounts of debt. I mean, and this is Jeff Booth's argument that just this exponential debt curve that we're on, we are approaching levels of exponential debt that people just don't understand. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. dollar will be the last to, f to fail. The U.S. dollar is actually probably a long-term, very good, stable fiat bet because it is the strongest. It is the world's reserve currency. But the cost of that is, you know, a massive military industrial com complex. It's, uh, you know, the U.S. government having to do, you know, alliances with U.S. petrodollar backed uh, environmentally horrible, destructive, you know, energy systems. Bitcoin does fix this. Like Bitcoin literally moves us off the oil, US dollar, petro, fiat world standard into a green energy backed ASIC mining world. And so like even Ke Kevin O'Leary and some of the comments, uh, did you have? Yeah, hi Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lo love Kevin. And when he was talking about some of the ESG boards uh, and what he needs to do uh, to get products in front of his companies, he doesn't even fully understand what's happening in the Bitcoin world. There are so many Bitcoin companies that are Bitcoin only, Bitcoin focused, 
that haven't had access to the public markets. Unfortunately, the only public market company that we have in the Bitcoin space, in the crypto space, is Coinbase. And, you know, argue what they want, but Coinbase at least got out. We got, some, we got some miners. Uh, there are a few miners in the yeah. Canadian markets. Yeah. Uh, there are people doing Bitcoin mining. Yeah. Yeah. But there just aren't enough public products. So there's trillions of dollars of capital in that sovereign wealth area that Kevin deals with that want access. He literally said on your show, I think, he has a target of moving from 3% allocation mm-hmm. to 7% into crypto. And if we don't get enough Bitcoin companies public, viable, you know, whether it's Blockstream to a direct listing or other Bitcoin-only companies that deserve to go public, um, then he doesn't have enough product to invest in. Now, you know, some of them have figured out how to do it by owning ETFs, and hopefully we'll get a a vehicle, an ETF vehicle going. But... We'll see. This was fascinating. Oh, I've got so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, okay, let's close this one here. We'll come back in the morning and we'll continue this and we'll talk about the vulnerable world hypothesis. Great. This is fascinating. Honestly, it's like Jeremy said, you in the bathroom, like hanging on every word. I, this is one of the easiest interviews I've had to do. I've just had to sit and listen. It's fascinating. Thank you, Austin. Do you want? Do you want to send anyone listening to anywhere? Do you want them to go and like usually ask where to follow you? Like, do you want people to follow you? Or do you want no, to go? No, no, I'm retired. <laughs> follow I, Bitcoin. I, I, I'm I'm planning a marriage this year. I'm getting married. I'm happily focused on living uh, pseudonymously in Latin America. Well, congratulations so. on that. Thank you. Right, tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, let's do this again. Great. All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 